0: Well, good morning. And good morning to those who are back with us. We're glad we got back online. I hope we have at least. I think we have. So, it's good to have you back with us. And I just lost my, uh, there we go. Come on back, Sermon. There we go. It's good to be together. I know that we're missing well over half of our congregation in this room, and we do hope that they stuck with us and that you're with us today. But as you know, we're we're really going through this book series, at least in my sermon series on Matthew, and and we come to this incredible passage that I think often is is pretty well known at least by those who've hung around the church a little bit and if you haven't hung around the church a little bit like me and most about half of my life um, this sounds like the most audacious thing that could possibly be true I mean really ask it's that simple and it'll be given uh, somehow my life doesn't seem to reflect that How about you and I'm wondering what's going on here you know it is though a, an interesting question or an interesting statement that that we live in a world and i do think honestly the cynicism has crept in more and more these days where there's this sense that when we pray no one's listening i mean there is that fear there is that genuine sense of despair and i think we do have a world some people call it postmodernism some people just call it the despair of our times but but there is a sense of hopelessness. I'm reminded of a great poem that Walter D. Lemaire uh, in The Listener. Maybe you're familiar with it. Some of you might have memorized it in grammar school. But it, it begins like this. The world that, that, that Lemaire is depicting. Think about this world. Think of this as a worldview poetry, if you will. Is anybody there? Said the traveler. Knocking on the moonlit door. And his horse in the silence chomped the grasses in the forest fairy floor. And a bird flew up out of the turret above the traveler's head. And he smote upon the door again a second time. Is anybody there? He said. But no one descended to the traveler. No head from the leaf fringed sill leaned over and looked into his gray eyes. Where he stood perplexed and still. What a depiction. Notice the eyes, the gray eyes. The eyes of a hopelessness coming in. Notice no descent. Interesting choice of language. No descent. From where? To him. And of course there's the door. And there's the knocking. And then there's the furious knocking and still. No one's listening. Jean-Parsart, who is an existentialist and then somewhat postmodern himself, with a poetry like this, he wasn't commenting on this piece of poetry, but he said it well. Sometimes we just feel like we are a useless passion. Well, we've got passion, don't we? But it seems meaningless. That we live and it's meaningless that we die. No one is listening. Is that true? Let's just be honest. Have you felt that way? Is that true? Is there no God who listens to our knock at his door? Are we, as Sartre suggested, nothing but useless passion? Passion that has no real conclusion? Meaningless in a world where there is no one listening? Notice how in stark contrast is this passage today. And it challenges our sense of hopelessness. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, there it is. And it will be opened to you for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, It will be opened is this just myth useless passion or is it true that's what we need to think about as we enter into this discussion today but first let's pray father we pray to you because it's our instinct to pray maybe that in itself suggests that you are listening for something enough wants you to be listening Expect you to be listening, and so we pray, even now, we pray that you would listen to whatever hopelessness is knocking at your door in our lives, that you speak to us, Lord, where we need to be spoken to, where there needs to be conviction of sin, that the door might be exposed. Help us, Lord, to be convicted. Lord, where we need faith and hope, Give us faith and hope, but Lord, please come, listen to us, Lord, as we ask, as we seek, as we knock, to know you, to know your will, to know your kingdom. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, again, uh, very briefly, as you know, we're going to start with the text and make sure we look at it. Uh, There are three commands, and each of them are in the active and not passive voice. That's important here. And they are seeking good things from God. Again, ask and it will be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. And each time, the present imperative is used to indicate a continuous kind of process or even lifestyle, if you will, of asking, searching, and knocking. It could be read like this. Go on asking. Go on searching. Go on knocking. It speaks more not to an event as we often sometimes like to reduce Christianity but it speaks to just a whole way of thinking and living our life. Where there's this constant and ongoing asking and seeking and knocking dialogical relationship with someone if he's there, if he's listening who would be relevant to our lives such that we would want to communicate with him. Here again, the kingdom of God is not presented as Walter De La Mar's depiction of a world with no one listening. And our passage makes it so easy. Did you notice that? It just seems so easy. Now I want you to hang on with me because next week you could almost, have, I almost call this part one, part two, you know, of a, of a series on seeking God. But, but part two is going to Say kind of the opposite. He's going to talk about how few enter into the way. It's narrow, and all of that. And it's it's an interesting juxtaposition of this passage because here we have this kind of a. It's just so freaking easy. Just ask, man. Just ask, and I'll give it to you. It's that easy. People come to my office. I don't know if I have faith. Well, guess what? You're in my office. You got faith. You might need to build it up a little bit so that you can have the definition of faith fulfilled. Faith, of course, is defined throughout Scripture as a combination of assenting to something that we would believe in. But it's an assent of truth or promise. It's a receiving that is discerning that I need it and I want it. And then Resting putting my hope in it assent receive rest it all within this context understood the idea of ask seek knock it's that easy even if it needs to be filled out with a little content with a little self knowledge and and a self understanding wherein we discern a need and and that final, okay, (sighs) this is my hope, this is my conviction, this is where I'll stand, this is where I'll go when I doubt and wonder, I'll go back to this promise over and over and over again. I'm trying to fill out this idea of this active, not passive, present, imperative of this grammar that tells us legions about the nature of faith. Filled out like that, it's, we always, we're asking, we're searching, we're knocking. We're assenting to something. Though, Lord, help me in my unbelief understand it more. We're seeking for something. Lord, help me understand my will in my heart that I may receive it. And we are resting in something. Knocking and the door is open and I'm in the house secure. And so it seems we find one of the primary teachings of the Bible that God is there. That God is, listening. the very premise of this, is it not, is that God is there. Don't make any mistake about it. He hears you. Do you believe that? He hears you. We have a whole story handed down from generations th- to generations to generations thousands of years worth of stories giving you the basis for why you can affirm yes God is there yes he listens and yes he gives it begins with the promise of ...given to Adam and Eve, fulfilled eventually through Seth and his line, and it brings you through Noah, and it brings you through the Exodus and the Dead Sea. And it, and it takes you through those moments when people were hopeless with despair, and every time, hopelessly in despair, we discover that there's this pattern of sin and, and curse... Or, or this idea of, of being in slavery, SSSS. Remember the sin, the slavery, the hopelessness, the supplication, asking, and the deliverance, salvation. It's a story throughout Genesis to the to Revelations. We so desperately need to to look at the world, to see the world through the. The lens of the whole history of the world. And we have one book in all the world that attempts to do that with God. And that is our Holy Bible. Every other religious book doesn't do that. It's so powerful. And so, yes, we have this incredible, amazing assumption that God is there. And he is listening. And he makes good on his promises So at first glance, this is about how easy it is to receive God and his blessing. Just ask. But is that all that is intended here? What is being asked for, really? Is there a qualification, maybe? Oh, now you're starting to get anked anxious aren't you okay I knew it I knew it I knew it the fine print is coming here he goes and here he goes equivocating all over again them pastors are good at that aren't they here's all the you know small letter stuff no no not quite in fact not just not quite not at all I think what you'll discover is that we tend to read this passage with too low of expectations that's what I'll say actually I'm gonna gonna ramp it up now I'm gonna amp it up I'm gonna say that too often we read this passage and we insert such paltry, tiny things compared to what might be suggested in this passage. For I want to give you a couple of hints. There is a sense of urgency, isn't there? Isn't there? There is a sense of desperate urgency in this, in this passage. Hint number one. Hint number two: what is it that shall be granted to you? Ask and it. That's what we got, it. What is the it that we are asking for? Hint again. Notice the transaction with God is compared to a transaction with an earthly parent. Particularly in verse 11 we see how if you being inherently evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father in heaven who is inherently good Therefore, is willing to give good to those who ask. Did you see three times good? Three times good. And it's stated in a kind of contrast like, hey, guys, even a parent on earth, you know, those who are inherently sinful, who are suffering under the curse of original sin, who are... Sinfully depraved of all the fullness of righteousness and goodness that they were meant to have. All of us struggling with sin. Even those of us who we all acknowledge. Just look at the world. Of course we're struggling with sin and moral brokenness. Even those who are struggling like that. Have you noticed how they give good things to their children? Hmm. Tell me. Kids. Lots of kids in this room. I love that. Do your parents just give you anything you ask for? Come on, let me see that. Come on, let's let's. This is your moment. You can express yourself. Okay? No. They don't. Hmm. Now I know this is gonna be hard to hear, and you hate it when the parent, you know, the pastor on the pulpit, kind of backs the parents a little bit. But the fact is, one day you're gonna look at what you were asking, and you're gonna think. That was so small and insignificant compared to what I think my parents were trying to give me. I know, I know, it's hard to hear right now. But I think you'll say that. What good parent gives a child everything he or she wants? Really, what parent would ever do that? Of course not. Why? Because not everything a child wants is good. And by the way, parent, remember you're a child of God. What parent... Divine parent would ever give you, child of God, everything you want. Would that be good? I think you're getting the point. Good for who exactly? Good for what exactly? Because not everything a child wants is good. Good for them, good for the world, good for the family, good for the purposes and interests of God. And so notice carefully what God is here promising to give to those who seek, who who ask, seek, and knock. It's all here summed with good things, good gifts, just good. Now, what is it, the good things? Okay, I know y'all get tired of me saying this. We just got to repent of reading our Bible in verses. We just got to repent of that. I know it's popular, it's easy, I can memorize it in one verse. But when we do that... We just import our own imaginations and desires and wants and interests into that passage and we make it into something that is absolutely disastrous compared to what God wants you to hear. What if you were to read this passage and you were to do a a bit of a study, which is what you hope and pay me to do, right, and the other pastors and say, where do we see this language elsewhere in Scripture? This language of seeking and asking and knocking. And and where do we see that where this language of good comes into it? There are passages like that. In fact, very significant prophetic passages. And it's not surprising because all through Matthew, Matthew has been with He's been exegeting the Old Testament scriptures to demonstrate that Christ is in fact the Messiah and he has in fact come to bring the kingdom of God. And he has done nothing but cite and cite Christ citing Holy Scripture of redemptive history past. And here's an example. Listen carefully. I didn't have this one read. I had the next one read, Jeremiah. But listen to this passage. Hear it with the lens of reading the passage we just did in Matthew. And guess what you're going to discover? Listen carefully. Isaiah 65, verse 1 and following. I was ready, says the Lord, to be sought after by those who used not to ask. I was ready to be sought after by those who used not to ask, to be found by those who used not to seek me. And I said, here I am. Here I am, I didn't just repeat it, it's quoted that way. Here I am, here I am, God eager to hear, God eager to listen to a nation that did not call or search after me. And what does God want to give them in this passage? I'm going to continue now. For I am about to create for them a new heaven, and a new earth. Oh, God, would you please give me that new car? And God's over here saying, I want to give you a new heaven and earth. And of course, we know over and over what he's talking about. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God that brings the rule of God onto this earth, such as to annihilate and to abolish the curse of sin and all of its cursed effects upon our world. He wants to give you everything. And that's what's being quoted here by Christ. It goes on to say, for I'm about to create a new heaven and a new earth, the former things. What's those former things? All that world informed by the curse of sin. These former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice, clear word, forever. And what I am creating, for I am about to create a new Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. Now, where are you going to see that fulfilled? You're going to see it in Revelations. Nothing less than the eternal kingdom of God, heaven and earth is what Christ is thinking about, and of course he is. Everything written in Matthew's gospel has been about the coming of the kingdom of God. It's been his only and single passion, emphasizing that this kingdom is not of this world, but it's of heaven, so he calls it the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that this world with all its power cannot do. Now I read again the Jeremiah passage that you heard Earlier in the day, in the service, chapter twenty nine, for surely I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm. Stop. What good parent would give anything that a parent thinks would bring them harm? What good parent doesn't have plans for their children and their good? Even a parent who struggles with sin. How much more do you see? For surely I got some great plans for you, my children of God, says the Lord. I have some great plans for you. And he is dreaming and he is envisioning and he's got this beautiful, beatific, love-filled desire to see you just flourish. So just ask. And that's what it goes on to say. So that you will call upon me. And come and pray to me, and I will hear you. And when you search for me, there it is. We've gotten prayer, we've gotten search. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven to you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you to exile. That is the place of heaven. Now, is it just a coincidence, do you think, that Matthew quoting his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, that it might have actually been sermons, which means exegeting, and they're just giving you the tagline. They're not telling you the whole sermon, of course. It lasted days, of course not, but he's telling you the tagline. Here was the take-home of one of these sermons. Here's another take home of one of these sermons. Here's another take home. Have you ever thought of the sermon mount like that? That maybe they were sermons? He was bringing the word of God. He wasn't just standing up there like some kind of a, I don't know, wisdom sire or something and just throwing out little platitudes. Maybe he was instructing and bringing the word of God. Matthew writing now to a people who would have used his text as he would expect them to in sermons so that they could explicate the historicity and the exegetical nature of what they're saying so that this little, quote, platitude that would sound like a platitude becomes now a take-home point. Seek, and you shall find. Or ask, well, ask, seek, knock, and you will find, find, find. That's what he's doing. I hope this doesn't bore you. I know. It's... it's, it's Gets into some tedious, but gosh, does this not just explode in your mind? How wealthy we are with the Holy Word of Scripture. That we would love it. And so here we go. The passage in Luke. It's interesting by comparison. Almost the same exact wording in Luke. Probably from the same source called Q, and I won't go into that, a a source that both these guys were using in terms of the the data from Christ's sermons. But there's one small difference, only one, only one difference between Luke's version and Matthew's version. And it's, it's to translate the word good. Evidently recognizing that it could be vague unless you knew your Old Testament scripture. And so he translates it. And what does he say? Where you saw good things, you see the word, the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the Holy Spirit represent? It's it's not this subjective, individualized little power that comes into us. That's hardly the way it's used, that we are filled with the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was, was this huge concept that God... In the last days when the coming of the kingdom of God would come would send His Spirit which would then sprinkle our hearts that they might be cleansed. That would basically give us new birth so that we would participate in the new heavens and the new earth. In fact, that's some people say, what did Jesus mean when He said there's only one unforgivable sin and that is to reject the Holy Spirit. And everybody goes, oh, what does that mean? It means nothing less than to reject Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God because that is what the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was prophesied to do and to bring and to empower. To reject Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And here he inserts this language of the Holy Spirit Again, Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Remember, I just read that. And he goes on to say, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your sins and all of your idols. I will cleanse you and a new heart. I will give you with a new spirit. I will put in you and I'll remove from your body the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. That's what Luke says. And search for good things. Okay, so I think we're getting it. This passage is proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God yet again. As the good thing. Realizing the prophetic expectation is, is coming true. Matthew is besides himself about it. I won't repeat for you again how Matthew has been emphasizing this incredible, powerful coming of the King of God. One instance or one context that i had forgotten to mention last week in the sermon about that long list of of how Matthew has been bringing in the King of God was this incredible moment when Christ was baptized. In chapter 3, and he goes says this, I baptize you with water, said John, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There it is. The good things, the coming of the new heart and the new heaven and the new earth by the Holy Spirit. Everything Matthew has recorded thus far has been to proclaim this coming. Why would we expect that this passage would be about anything less or else? So here's the conclusion of our exegetical exercise, if you will good things. God is listening. And God is there. And God is going to fulfill his promise to send you his Holy Spirit in the new heavens and new earth, the coming of the King of God. Ask, seek, find, knock. The application here is not ask of all these tiny, paltry things. It's to ask for everything pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, what would that look like? Maybe it's true you'd be talking about buying a new car in your prayer. But it would change the way you think about it. it changed the way you pray for it. You wouldn't be there just trying to convince, oh, I've done this. I know you have too. I listen back and go, God, that's almost embarrassing as I'm sitting here trying to give God, you know, this kind of nice reasoning through my prayer open up the floodgates and give me a car. I'm not just talking about cars of course. This is, makes just mockery of this passage. No, what should I be praying is for the kingdom of God. We as Christians, if we understand this amazing promise that God has bigger plans for you than you could possibly have for yourself and therefore ask for his kingdom of God. Every prayer, ask for his kingdom of God to come. Every prayer, I'm tempted to say it about 10 times because sometimes repetition just needs to be done. Really, every prayer. It might be about a lot of things, but it is ultimately a prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread of Jesus Christ in my life. Forgive us our sins. Deliver us from the evil of idols and temptations. And Lord, help me now to pray to you about this desire in my heart for a car that I might be praying it for the sake of the kingdom. And only then, for this job, for this raise, for this house, for this illness and healing, For this financial adjustment. It's all there. Paltry. Really. I know. I can't believe I'm saying this. I mean health is pretty important right. But it's paltry compared. To what God intends for you. Thy kingdom come. You know. This passage tells us a lot about God. This passage tells you a lot about. His listening. And it tells us about a lot about his desire to flourish you and to make you more happy than you could ever make yourself. You know, it's interesting how I was influenced so much by a man named Francis Schaeffer. And how I was thinking about his book, The God Who Is There, as I was preparing this sermon, and went back and looked at it a little bit. And I began to pick out these things that he was saying that I have said a hundred times and forgotten where I've gotten them. But there's one of these things that I know I've said many, many times to you and to others who are struggling to know that there's a God who is there in so many words. And I remember, you know, rehearsing the sort of way in which I at least understand how to get there. For me at least, and I think for any of us. You know, it it just starts with creation. I have to look at creation. I have to immerse myself in it and, and see its beauty and see its passion and see all that's there. But especially the creation of humanity. And I come to the conclusion that it's more reasonable than not. It's a greater leap of faith not to believe in God than to believe in God. And I know that I can't live my life... You know, on a a conjure, you you know, every decision you make is either there is a God or either there is not a God. There is no such thing as a, I don't know, decision because they all predicate God or not. And so I came to this passage that that he had written and I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. You know, that he wrote it this way and, and now I'm seeing where it came from. No one has presented an idea, let alone demonstrated, to be feasible to explain how the impersonal beginning, if that's what you believe about life, plus time, plus chance, can give personality. I mean, that's always won me right there. Boom. I mean, that's just, just preposterous. How an impersonal beginning plus time plus chance gives personality. And if humanity has been kicked up by chance out of what is only impersonal, then those things that make him human, hope of purpose, significance, love, motions of morality, rationality, beauty, verbal communication, they are all ultimately unfulfillable and are all thus meaningless passion back to Sarcher, I thought, that's right. If you're listening to this, I'm here to tell you that there's so much more reason to take that emotional leap of faith and to believe that there's a God who is there and he's listening. By far, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's to go down to the Museum of Art and just stare at this amazing art that humans make. And ask, does that come from unhuman sources? Maybe it's to go to a play, a Broadway. I find myself always tearing up at these things. And it's not because of the content of the play. It's for the play itself just existing. And I find myself so moved that humanity can do such amazing things. And I believe in God. And if God, again, is personal, which is the whole first point, then God is wanting to be known and to know. God knows and wants to be known. That is person-esque-ness. What word can I make up? And so God is there. And he is listening. And so you want to know him? You want what blessings God, the author of life itself, would want to give you? Then you're going to have to ask. Why do we ask? Because God wants to be known. He set it up in a letter that we we would live life to know him. And to know him is to know life itself. Think about if he had taken that little step away. You don't have to ask. Well, what would, what would, what's the word? What, what, what would make that way of knowing him? Of seeking then him, seeking his mind, going to his scripture, seeking, asking his prayer, seeking and studying the scripture and all of nature to find him. Knocking is going to his community, his church. And I'm going to show you that in a minute. But you see these three things that are part of how it is that I will get to know this God. And will be recipients of that great, incredible, powerful, everlasting kingdom. What a stark contrast to the hopelessness that's in our world. I mean, how how many thousands of years of dashed utopian dreams that's been put upon the backs of this political, political regime or this educational scheme or this scientific discovery or this or that. How many, how many times, how many civilizations will come and go? How many political parties will come and go in history past, whether it's Rome or Assyria or Babylon, and we could go on and on and on. When, what will it take humans for us to recognize the hopelessness, this mindless trust that we put on institutions and vocations that have never yet in all of world history given us what we are in our guts asking for, this kind of happiness without fear of losing it, kind of life. No medicine has delivered us from the evil of disease and death. No education has delivered us from society and this uncivil and unjust world that we live in. No political party has yet to deliver us from hate and prejudice and robberies. They're all good. They all restrain at best. Regardless of human systems, said Francis Schaeffer, He has to live in God's world. I love that. You can fight it all day long. It's God's world. To be right with God is the only way to get right with this world. And this world is our social, physical, psychological, mental world's the God who is there. What this passage indicates then regarding our relationship to God is we do have to ask, seek, knock, I mentioned to that, these promises are unequivocated. You will receive, notice, not you might. He puts us in the position of humility such that God is God. We are the beggar, we are the ones in need, we are the ones being evaluated who feel insecure about our future with our creator, not him. He is in no need. He is changeless. He is perfect. Only only imperfect things change. Perfect perfect things don't change because they're perfect. To to change a perfect thing would become imperfect. Can you fathom a, a, a being this way? He doesn't need us. But he wants us. For his mere good pleasure. He wants us. I don't know if I have any kind of want in my life that I can say is out of my mere good pleasure. Every want I have has a need attached to it. I don't know how to divorce it. I don't, mean, I don't know how to, to expand my mind, which is what I'm trying to do right now in this sermon, that we could conceive of a God who has no need of anything. And therefore, the most pure love, the most pure kindness, the most pure intentions of giving what he wants to give has absolutely no qualification. It's just who he is to want us in communion and to bless us eternally with it. What holds you back? Maybe you're a young man or young child in this room, and you haven't professed faith in Christ yet, what holds you back? How would we come to know Him? How would we be brought into this kind of world? Our confession calls it justifying faith, but it beautifully reflects this passage, how we assent to certain things. We assent to a certain set of knowledge about the promises of God, about the being of God, about ourselves. We assent to certain truths. We receive them. That is because we have discerned in ourselves the need, the humility, the conviction. I am broken. I need him. I'm I'm despaired. I'm hopeless. There is no person who truly comes to Christ with this yearning except that they have somehow gotten in touch with hitting rock bottom in their struggle in life. It doesn't have to be a big event. It can be all kinds of ways, but somewhere, somehow we recognize this isn't just, I don't know, one of the things you do because it's along with all the other good things you do as you grow up or as you're in your life, you do them. It's just not one of those kind of things that you just put alongside of all the other things, you know, from high school or graduate from college, get a job, you know, have a family, you know, have kids. Oh, and, you know, join the church. Not that kind of thing. We're dealing with something much, much, much more significant in its own category. It's getting right with God. This passage begs you to do it, literally begs you to do it. Be right with God. If you're an unbeliever, pray. First John says it this way, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request that we have asked of him. Now, of course, he's going to go on to describe the will of God in love. Ask. If you're not a Christian, ask. But, oh, Christian, start asking. Not for the car, but for the kingdom of God. Would you dare? And fit the car into the kingdom if it needs to be fit. One way or the other. The Christian repent of asking for paltry things. Oh, the things might be brought up. I want to make this clear. I keep saying it. Your health, your this, your that. They'll they'll come up. They should. We should bring those to God. But we bring them. With a view, with a vision that what we want in the world and with and through these things, however they translate out, is the coming of the kingdom of God in my life. Secondly, we seek Him. There's clearly evidence in Scripture that this language of searching for God is a search that we, we take to the Scriptures. John 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And he's saying you do. And it is they that bear witness about me. You're looking for the kingdom of God? Search the Scriptures. Go to God in prayer. Have you made time for that? Yeah, you know, I don't mean these. You know, I mean they—they're very helpful. All the Bible studies and all this. But I mean, get a friend and just read the Gospel of Matthew together, one chapter at a time, and just absorb it a little bit. Quit learning all the facts, okay? Quit—quit quit making it into a school. Read the Scripture. Listen to it. Observe in it. Not the cool facts that I can wow my friend with, but observe in it God and how he is there and how he listens and how he acts. Three things from this passage. Go to the word and start looking for it. How is God there? How is God listening? How is God giving? You'll see it everywhere. I'm reminded of the Bereans. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And these Jews were more noble than those who were in es- like, For they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things, the coming of the kingdom of God that Paul was preaching, are, were so. I encourage you to, you know, never let words come out of your mouth. Oh, I get plenty of scripture here. You don't get half as much scripture here as we need. Not half. If I could manage it and you, you'd be here every day together opening this. One of the things that I loved when I was a graduate student here is they just had made the Slifka Center over here for the Jewish community in, 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 in Yale. Some of you might know about that. And I would walk in there sometimes and sit down and eat just because I wanted to kind of be there. And you know what was happening in those rooms? I just I just I would get anything for this. In fact, we even tried to start this over here once when we got this little study center. But here's students coming in at lunch and they'd open up their Hebrew scriptures together and just read it together. Because scripture, just the language of scripture is sacred. Hebrew is sacred. Just reading. That's it. Just reading. Have you ever seen that, Craig? Have you ever been able to see that? Just Voluntary, coming together and read. It reminded me of being in seminary in those sweet days when I was taking Hebrew and me and a bunch of friends would say, hey, let's, let's, let's meet tonight or let's meet at lunch and let's just read Hebrew together. Our, our, our professor had said, you know, that if you're going to learn Hebrew, you're just going to have to go and just start reading it. And it's great because it's fun. you got a group of people and you get there and you kind of help each other with the words and you help each other with the grammar and it, it becomes a kind of fun thing, but you're just discovering God in the Scripture. Scripture is so amazing. I'm so fortunate. I will pay you back all the money you've given me because you have given me reason to go to the Scripture every week. And it is truly the most greatest gift that God has ever given me. I don't know that I would do it, quite frankly. I hope that I would, but I doubt it. And I know probably I couldn't. And that's why I so desperately want to get it to you on Sunday. And other pastors, too. But this Scripture, would that's what you do if you seek. And then, of course, knock. Clearly, it seems to me, there's a reference here to the church. In the same book of Matthew, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys. Now, if you look at the word key, this idea of keys, given unto this kingdom of heaven. He's saying the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And a keys is a reference literally to the, to the set of keys that were given to the temple uh, curators. That would open and close the doors of the temple and, and watching over it. It's coming right out of Nehemiah, what Matthew's quoting here. And it's very interesting. You see, if you want to experience God's presence, you know, we learn with our minds, but we also learn from our participating with things. You know, like when you buy a car, you, you probably learned more by driving it than you did by looking at its, its brochure, Right? You learn so much more about God by being on a date with Him than you do reading about Him in a book. They're both important. But the presence of God in the mystery of the church, it's all through the Scripture. It's called temple. God's temple-esque presence. He's there by the Spirit. And you touch Jesus when you touch the community of the body of Christ, which is why we're so passionate about opening this service back up. And it's coming. Sooner than you think. You'll hear about it later. We've got to get the presence back. The full presence of God mediated in with and through the church. And so I would say if you're wanting God in your life, unbeliever or believer, go to church. It's really not a platitude. Knock on that door and it will be opened into that kingdom of God where there will be binding and loosing of the kingdom of God going on. So there it is. It's really easy he's really that accessible the irony will be revealed next week come back today we have learned just how easy it is to enter the kingdom of God next week we enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads life and those who find it are few it's really easy But as you'll see, it's not for lack of easiness that so many people don't have it. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table.